Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zutko. Today, I'm joined by Andreas Schroeder, who is the head of energy analytics at ICIS, Independent Commodity Intelligence Services, a global company with over 150 years of experience in delivering market intelligence. Andreas is a leading expert on LNG issues, and I also highly recommend connecting with him on LinkedIn when he posts tremendous sources of knowledge. On this edition of IR Thinker, I'm curious about Russian LNG in European Union, but basically also in Europe. Is it a sign of hypocrisy or is it a smart business move? We will answer many questions about the Russian LNG in Europe, and I hope that this video will be educational for all of you. Andreas, welcome to the talk show. And can you please tell us a bit about your work? What exactly do you do for ICIS? Hi, thanks for the invitation. So I'm head of, of energy analytics at ICIS, the market intelligence provider. What we do is um, we cover energy markets with data, models, and forecasts. And we do that for all commodities, not only LNG, but also EU emissions trading, certificates, uh, power markets, hydrogen markets, gas markets. So mm. it's cross-commodity work. And that's what I do. Right. And for how long have you been in this profession or sphere of interest? I joined the company in 2020. So mm -hmm. it's about two years ago, but I've been working in the energy field for more than 10 years now, including work at the International Energy Agency and in research academia as well. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So let's explore the anatomy of Russian LNG in Europe. Uh, we can also speak about the Europe as a, as a continent, but we also speak Europe as a European Union. I went through data and I think not many people know that while everyone is glorifying the end of dependency of, on Russian gas, there is also the chapter called LNG, which is a bit hidden. And according to data I have, it represents around 14% of European LNG, which is a significant number. So let's start from the beginning. How Russian LNG got into Europe? What was the story? Yeah, so Russia is striving to expand its LNG exports, and it has been following this strategy for many years. Um, so it invested into LNG terminals in Yamal Peninsula, so in the northern sea, Arctic Sea, I would say, strategy of mm -hmm. Russia. Mm -hmm. um, this strategy is a long-term strategy which gives optionality because it allows for exports into any region. It makes uh, Russia less dependent on one single consumer and one single importer. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so traditionally, Russia has a gas export monopoly for pipeline business, which is reserved for Gazprom. But the LNG export is a bit more liberal. So there's other companies um, attached to that, like Novatec, uh, for instance. They have been investing into LNG terminals. Now, um, so this has been a few years ago with the Yamal terminal. That was built a few years ago, but um, now Russia is even striving to expand this with Gazprom investing into new additional LNG terminals. Right. 
And do we know the, the day, the year when the first LNG came to Europe or not? Uh, yeah, so um, Yamal LNG was built um, in 2017, so it's uh -huh. about five years ago. Okay. And that is LNG that is go going mostly to Europe. Mm -hmm. Russia had a Sakhalin terminal already in East Asia for since 29, but that was not LNG going to Europe really, so that was more for, for the Japanese and other customers. Right. Uh, I know Novatek, a Russian company, which is like independent, but it's very, very difficult to describe what is independent in Russia, because as we know, Mr. Mikkelson and Mr. Timchenko, they are very rich people. And uh, we know that Mr. Timchenko has a Volga company, which is a major shareholder in Novatek. But can we say, or can we describe the Novatek strategic plan for the Europe? Like, is, he, is Novatek going to be the only company delivering LNG or Gazprom and Rosneft and others will join this company in the future? In the past, Novatek was the big Russian LNG exporter mm -hmm. and it was a relatively independent company, not as much uh, steered by Kremlin as Gazprom. So the mm -hmm. connection was a bit less straight. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, it's a fully Russian company. Mm -hmm. It is traded on the stock exchange, but it is fully in control of, of, of uh, Russian people. So the Kremlin has um, an influence on them. Right. And um, it, it will probably use this influence more and more. Mm -hmm. And Novatek Nova is not the only gas uh, LNG exporter, so there will be others coming as well. Gazprom is pursuing that strategy as well, so they have been investing into a new terminal, Portovaya, close to St. Petersburg, which has been opened just in 2022. Uh, and so it's getting competition. So there's even intra-Russian competition between Novatek and Gazprom now about LNG. I see. Let's, let's clarify LNG. We say that Russia has natural gas, and we are speaking about LNG. What's the procedure of getting LNG? Can we say that if Russia has natural gas, and Russia basically exported natural gas through pipelines, how easy is to switch to LNG export? Like, what's the procedure? Do they need to invest a lot, or they basically do some minor, you know, corrections, and they can basically export LNG? Exporting LNG is very complicated and it's cost intensive. So it requires a lot of capital investment upfront. Mm -hmm. It's huge investment. It's huge facilities, terminals that need to liquefy gas and um, uh, bring it to very low uh, temperatures, cryo cryogenic temperatures of minus 162 degrees. Mm -hmm. This is very energy intensive. And to make this possible, you need infrastructure that is um, often taking years uh, to, be, to be built. Yeah? So Yamal LNG terminal was built over five years. Now the advantage, or even more years, the advantage of Russia and the Arctic seas, it's already quite cold mm -hmm. there. So it helps to some extent, but uh, it, it is still very expensive to build. Uh, yeah. Right. And if you if you speak about Novatek, how can we assess the structure and the sophistication of the Novatek's technology in terms of LNG? Is is Novatek well prepared for LNG export? 
because we know that we are hearing about sanctions and that Russia has having problems with technology. So I just want to clarify how Novatech is strong and how Novatech is ready to export the, the LNG. Yeah, so Novatech collected experience over many years already, mm -hmm. so they are a strong player in LNG terms. Mm -hmm. uh, especially, they are one of the few companies in the world who have experience with uh, Arctic uh, um, frozen seas mm -hmm. and LNG in this type of environment. Uh, other LNG exporters are more like Gulf of Mexico in the US, so they are they are used to other temperatures, and it's a bit uh -huh. easier. So mm -hmm. Russia is having experience with very difficult terrain, mm -hmm. uh, very difficult ge geographic circumstances. Uh, the The only problem they're facing is it's a bit of a technology issue. So as soon as you repair things, turbines, uh, valves, and whatever. Uh, you often require collaboration with uh, partners from other companies. And a lot of the technology, LNG cryogenic technology, is coming from Western companies. But uh, yeah, it limits your choices and it makes it a bit more complicated. We saw a similar issue when Nord Stream Pipeline was built, remember, the Nord Stream 2. So sanctions hit Russia. And then it made it less um, easy for them to build this pipeline. So they had to rely on Russian pipeline laying ships and there were only two uh, left in the world. So it, uh, it delayed the whole pipeline building. It is not a complete stop. Mm -hmm. uh, the sanctions do not completely stop LNG build out, but it makes it a bit slower and it makes it more cumbersome for Russia. Understood. And what's about the process of delivering LNG from Russia to European Union or to Europe? Does Novatech use ships made in Russia or they are international or how this how this works? Yeah, the, the case of Novatech and Yamal LNG is a bit special because it's not ice free. Yeah, so their port requires special ships mm -hmm. which have a um uh, ice classification and so they can um, break ice mm -hmm. and, and uh, you need a certain category there to to be able to operate in winter season as well when it's uh, freezingly cold in that mm -hmm. area and Novatech is a special company having experience with that and they all own and operate Russian built ships or no, Russian owned ships yeah? Christoph de Margery is one example and there's plenty of others not too many, though. Know. They have a certain fleet of ships, and that's going back and forth between Europe and Yamal LNG. That's wow. for that's for the Arctic LNG fields. Now, there's other fields like Portovaya, Saint Petersburg. This is ice free, mm -hmm. or nearly ice free. So there, you can operate a bit easier with normal ships that you don't need icebreakers. I understand. That's that's very interesting. I I, I didn't know about that sort of difference you need different ships because that makes the case uh, much more interesting for Novatech as, as not yes. all the ships can basically transport the Russian LNG from Russia to Europe so yeah. that's that, that was that was a good point thank you for that uh, now let's touch a little bit of politics the European Union declared the independence on Russian gas but in 2022 according to my data, for the first nine months, 
the LNG export from Russia to European Union increased by 46%. That's, that's what I basically found in uh, data. And now when we spoke about Novatec and Mr. Timchenko and Mikkelsen, I'm, I'm thinking like, is it the big politics that we import LNG from Russia to the European Union, which basically the money goes to Novatec, but those, that company is basically linked with Russian government in some way. So how is it possible that we can do this despite all the sanctions? I think we have like nine packages of sanctions already, you know, imposed on Russia. Can, can we say a few words about that topic? That's a very interesting case. Um, so first of all, I would say the share of Russia in LNG imports in Europe is not tremendously high. So it's 13, 14% roughly mm -hmm. this year. The, the share has been even reduced a little bit. Um, but the overall amount is increasing. So we've been importing about 14.5 million tons. So that's around 16 or 17 BCM of gas mm -hmm. from Russia in terms of LNG. That's not in, insignificant, but I would not talk of a dependence here. Mm -hmm. So it's not uh, highly critical uh, in political terms, but it's a bit hypocritical indeed, because um, we are reducing gas imports on pipeline basis, but we are then increasing LNG imports. Mm -hmm. And with the rise in prices, this is giving additional revenues to to. Um, to a Russian-based company, Novatec, and Russia is aware of this. So um, just now in January, um, Russia will increase the export tax on LNG. Mm -hmm. yeah, so they, they are aware of these increased revenues in Novatec and they want to seize these revenues to fill the state budget. Do we know the percentage of the tax? So uh, the, the Russian state, as of January 2023, they intend to increase the export tax on LNG from 22, roughly 34% or 35%. And the Russian finance ministry hopes to raise another 3 billion or so of dollars uh, to, to fill up the Russian state budget through mm -hmm. these LNG sales. So it's becoming political in that sense. Although the volumes are not major, uh, with the rising prices, this is becoming an, uh, a political issue indeed. It is one country in Europe, the United Kingdom. They have implemented a full gas embargo and LNG embargo on Russia since April. So they have stopped importing Russian LNG. The European Union has not stopped importing LNG from Russia, but they have increased it even slightly. Mm -hmm. So... You could say it's political, although it's not uh, the highest share of, of, of energy imports and it's not a dependency really. Right. And can we talk like you work as a head of analyst, uh, analytical department. So basically, what is dependency and what is not dependency in terms of percentage? For you, how many percent means something is dependent? Yeah, I would not tie it to a percentage level okay. because, um, uh, for example, we are not dependent on Russian oil imports, uh -huh. although they are making up a huge share of European imports. Yeah? So it was a third or so in the past, but there was not 
a full dependency because we had the option of, of switching to another supplier. Uh, in gas terms, it's a bit less easy because of the huge share of pipeline gas uh, that was not easy to switch away from. Therefore, wow. the optionality was not there. This is, this is what I would call a dependency. It was not easy to switch. Mm-hmm. It's easier with coal. It's easier with oil because there we have enough capacity to mm-hmm. import that. It's, it's, a, it's something that is tradable on ships where you can easily supply, change the supplier. Similarly for LNG, uh, once you uh, have enough LNG capacity, then you have the optionality of using other importers. So I would not tie it to a percentage level. Right, I understand. That, that's, that's also a good point because when I speak about LNG or pipelines uh, with my students, they often ask like, how many percent is like dependency and how many is not dependency? Because what, what we were discussing last uh, month was the share of the US LNG in Europe which is mm-hmm. reaching around 40%, something around 40%. And mm-hmm. some students ask me, so we were dependent on Russia and now are we dependent on the US? You know, that's sort of tricky question to answer. So so therefore, you know, that sort of question, because I think many people, they, they understand the numbers. They see the headline in Financial Times or Bloomberg and all mm-hmm. these medias and, and they are like thinking about numbers, but they don't think about the volume. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a very good point, I think. Yeah, so the 40% of the US in LNG imports to Europe is quite sizable. Mm-hmm. But I would say it could maybe not be switched off immediately, but within a short time, you could switch the supplier to someone else. Or something. Right. That would be technically possible. Right. Uh, when we spoke about LNG from the US, there is one question. During 2022, the European gas storages were filled by pipeline gas, mainly pipeline gas. And this gas was from the Russia and it was transported via the Nord Stream 1. Then we had Nord Stream 2, which was not operating. Now both Nord Streams are damaged due to sabotage. So the logical question is, is Europe going to be able to fill the gas storages for the next winter, 2023, based on LNG or not? Or how is the situation at the moment, please? Yeah, the situation is relatively good at the moment because of the high levels of stock that we are having in Europe. Thanks to the mild winter weather, Mm -hmm. uh, stock levels are in the range 85% or so for Europe at the moment. This is very high for a January level. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we don't need to fill so much gas uh, in 2023. But as you pointed out, the problem is we don't have pipeline gas of Russia so much this year. So we have to fill it with LNG. It's possible, it's technically possible, but it will be expensive. And why is it expensive? Like, what is, is the procedure completely different? Filling the gas storages, or were gas storages in Europe designed for the pipeline gas only? That, that sort of topic, I'm not hundred percent sure about. Uh, once the LNG is regasified, it doesn't mm-hmm. make a difference to pipeline gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue is LNG is more expensive because it has logistical challenges. 
You have to bring the gas from far away. Uh, it has to be liquefied. It has to be kept at very low temperature, then regasified. All of these logistical supply chain additions add cost. Yeah? So right. therefore, LNG is just more expensive for technical reasons already. Mm-hmm. I see. And if, for instance, we have LNG terminal in Spain and there is a gas storage in, let's say, Austria, is it possible to transport the same gas from Spain to Austria, like to revert the the flow of the gas or not? Uh, uh... Ideally, yes, but there's issues in Europe uh, because mm-hmm. France is in between and they have authorized gas, so they cannot easily export to the to the eastern countries. Yeah. So traditionally, Europe used to flow gas from east to the west. west. Correct. That was the traditional direction. Now we are reversing partly, and it's it's okay for emergency purposes at low mm-hmm. volumes, but it's not okay for large volumes. Yeah? So Spain does not help to fill Austrian storages. But what helps is that Germany, Poland, Netherlands, and others are expanding their LNG terminals. So Mm -hmm. this is helping. Right. And when I had the class with one professor here in Scotland, we spoke about how expensive is it to build the LNG terminal. And he told us it's roughly 1 billion euros. And it takes two years, depends on the land and, and, and all the circumstances. So, like, how is the position of the European Union in building new terminals? That's the first question. And the supporting question is, how many more does Europe need? Is, is it possible to answer that sort of question? Mm-hmm. So, the, the European Union is supporting the buildup of LNG infrastructure. It used to do so in the past uh, by supporting projects of common interest. Now it's especially member states themselves who are driving this. Germany is an example of where the state, not so much the EU, but the state is really behind very quickly building floating terminals. Those floating terminals, as you pointed out, it's about 1 billion or so charter costs over the years. So it's relatively cheap <laughs> compared to um, fixed terminals, uh, land-based terminals. They are more expensive and they are more long-term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and export terminals are even more expensive. They are, they are, we're talking three to five billion or so per export terminal right. dollars. Uh, um, and yeah, do we need more of that? I think there's a risk now even of overbuilding infrastructure. Uh, so Germany is building six or seven terminals now all at once. And I think this is a bit over-exaggerated. It's, it's a scramble now to be the first. I understand we need additional LNG infrastructure now, floating terminals especially. But we don't know how quickly gas consumption is going down with the climate targets. So it could the, these assets could become stranded assets over time. Right. So let's let's assume we have enough of LNG terminals in Europe. And now there is another tricky question. Can Russia bypass the sanctions and basically sell LNG to different holdings or different countries? And those holdings or countries will basically export LNG to Europe. So basically, in case there is a sanction or there is some restriction on Russian LNG, if the percentage will go up, 
Russia can bypass this by doing that. And I know some, you know, rumors are that some countries are already doing that sort of things. So from your point of view, as a person who is analyzing LNG, is it even possible to do this? So the Russian gas will come to Europe as a non-Russian, but it's basically from Russia. Yeah, essentially, things like that are possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you can follow every single ship. So we, as analysts, we could track any ship and see whether, if it comes from Russia or not. Uh, now, the icebreaker fleet of Novatech is often going to Belgium or Dunkirk, France, and then they are offloading the, their charge, their cargo, and then loading another ship. So, so they're switching ships and putting their LNG into a non-icebreaker ship, which is a bit cheaper, the charter. Yeah. Uh, and then once this is done, you cannot follow any longer. Is this Russian LNG or not? Mm. Also, um, Novatech could deal with companies, these aggregator companies, as Trafigura, Vidol, and others, mm-hmm. who are portfolio players. So they are buying LNG from all over the world. They are putting this into their portfolio, and then they're telling Germany or other countries, okay, here we have LNG for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we source it from somewhere. It's a bit obscure from where exactly, but uh, we guarantee you, you get one ship per month or so. And Germany now has a contract with Trafigura, 4 million tons per year, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of the potential possibilities for Russia to bypass sanctions by selling to Trafigura or others. Right. When you mentioned that Germany has a contract, Let's speak a little bit about the contract as a, as a theme. In the past, European Union criticized uh, countries and basically Gazprom for having long-term contracts. And European Union wanted to liberalize the market so you can buy the gas without having a 15 or 25 years old, 25 years contract. So is LNG contract and pipeline gas contract different or not? Um... Often they operate in similar structure. Mm-hmm. Um, gas pipeline contracts have often been 15 to 20 years long. LNG contracts are a bit more flexible. Sometimes they are five years, 10 years or so. Novatech is having long-term contracts as well, over 10 years, 15 mm-hmm. years even. Uh, so they, they are similar in a way. Right. But... Um, the interesting thing is with LNG contracts, you can build in destination clauses as well, but you could also free it. You could make it very free. Like US contracts, for instance, they often don't have destination clauses, so they can export to any other countries, mm-hmm. uh, whilst Qatar is quite keen on getting destination fixed. Right. Uh, and rush contracts often have a destination as well. Mm-hmm. This is sometimes uh, dictated by the by the ice conditions and the the special need for icebreaker ships. So mm-hmm. you don't want to, them to to have free destinations, but they need special infrastructure. Right, and and when I read few articles about the contracts, uh, pipeline contract with Gazprom and other companies, I know that there is that super nice clause that you either buy it or pay it if you don't need it. 
Is this the same with LNG? Yes. So the take or pay clauses are similar in a way. You have mm -hmm. minimum take-off obligations, and even if you don't take it, you will have to pay. So you you pay it anyway, and then so you will, you will take the gas. And this is very common both in pipeline and LNG contracts. So in other words, we can say that even Novatec is quite alright because the contract is insured by this clause. Yeah, Novatec uses these contracts to secure mm -hmm. the investment. So to back up and to to secure demand for the investment, mm -hmm. you have to. Right. Note they spend a lot of money on the infrastructure, so they want to uh, mm -hmm. say uh, right. to, to secure so, demand. So when when politicians tell us that we will you know finish the dependency on gas or LNG, in practical life, it's not that easy to do it from day to day because of the contract and of, because of the clauses, right? Correct. Yeah. So you would have to breach a contract an mm -hmm. existing contract if you place a gas embargo or LNG embargo or so mm -hmm. so you would have to call force majeure or political intervention to right. stop these contracts right. it happened uh, on the gas pipeline contracts with gas pumps mm -hmm. so they call force majeure uh, with some yeah, tricky argumentation with gas turbines not working or mm -hmm. special valves not working or mm -hmm. um, yeah, due to sanctions or so. But for LNG, uh, force majeure was not called yet. Right. Okay. And let's speak a bit about the price. Let's assume that one unit of LNG in Russia costs, let's say, 10 units of currency, just theoretically. And then the same unit of LNG is sold to Europe for a particular price. So I want to track the price. What does price mean in LNG contract? Like, for instance, what are we paying for and how this price operates in a practical life? So upstream, Russia is relatively cheap. So the gas production is cheap. But then the liquid section is an important cost component. We're talking of easily two to three dollars per MMBTU. Mm -hmm. Then you're adding the transportation cost of another one to two dollars per MMBTU, depending on the distance. And you add the regasification costs uh, in Europe, uh, let's say another half dollar per MMBTU. So you quickly arrive at five to six or seven purely cost based. Um, and then on top, you want a margin, mm -hmm. a profit to generate. So uh, LNG is easily 7 to $8 per MMBTU, just the cost of it. Uh, and, and that's way more expensive than the mm -hmm. uh, pure pipeline-based gas pump gas, which could be sold at as low as whatever, 2 or $3 per MMBTU. Right. If... Uh, if you just count the cost. Mm -hmm. Now, how does it operate? The, these contracts, the long-term contracts, are so important in LNG terms. And they're often oil indexed. So oil is used as index to to um, to stipulate the exact cost of, of gas. Right. Because, because this is also the issue that many students and, and also people don't really understand. I will sign a contract with Novatec for 10 years. And I will pay, let's say, twenty dollars per unit. How do, how is it possible that after three four years the price is like you know going up and down 
why the price is not stable. And I think this is also important to explain to people because sometimes I think they are confused because they think that I will sign the contract in January 2023 and the price will be the same in January 2033, which will take 10 years. Can we, can we clarify this a little bit for people so they understand why the price is going up and down during the long-term contract? Yeah, long-term contracts in gas LNG are often designed in a way that prices move over time. So the prices are not fixed. They are not completely fixed over the whole time horizon. Often they move in pair with oil prices. So oil is used as index to drive prices in the contract. This is done because uh, in the past oil was considered as an alternative option or as, mm -hmm. as a competitive option to gas, for mm -hmm. example, in heating. And uh, also oil is a relatively liquid market where you have some price index which indicates scarcity or, or, or abundance in, in markets. And therefore, oil is often used as, as, as price index. And then the gas price in the contract follows those fluctuations in oil. Mm -hmm. So can, can we say, like, if the oil prices are going down, there's a positive for the LNG price in the future, let's say short or mid term. But when the oil prices are going up, also we can expect the LNG gas prices going up. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and this mechanism, as as you say, that the LNG is in some way fixed to oil. Is this going to be changed, or people at the market they want to keep it as it is? Yeah, we estimate that the majority of LNG contracts still operates on an oil based mechanism, mm -hmm. but there is some players who want to get away from that. And especially US-based contracts are working in a different mechanism. So they are more fixed to Henry Hub gas prices mm -hmm. in the US. So this is a gas price hub index and not so much linked to oil prices. Whilst Qatar is really relatively keen on getting oil indexation. Mm -hmm. uh, Russia is so-and-so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and we know that for the... Asian LNG markets, oil oil is really the major driving price index. I would say right. for Europe, it's a bit more mixed because of the influence of US and and the willingness of Europeans to go away from oil indexation and mm -hmm. and go for gas price indexation. Right. Maybe maybe you know Greg Monar from uh, International Energy Agency. And yeah, he, he was my he, colleague. <laughs> he, he often he often publishes. Uh, sort of like a screenshot of the LNG prices with different hubs in the world. And some people ask me, like, Martin, why is it so much, you know, different? Like, sometimes we see the price in Russia, I don't know, four units, but price in Asia is like 45 units, you know. Why Why we have so much, you know, differences, you know, between or among those hubs? Is it, is it, is it just the market mechanism or... Is there any like regulations or historical things that, that have impact on that? So the reason why gas prices are so different worldwide are bottlenecks, infrastructure bottlenecks. Mm -hmm. And this is different to oil markets. In oil markets, you have one or two prices per world, let's say, and they're moving very, very close to each other because you have an extremely liquid market 
Mm-hmm. You have uh, almost no bottlenecks any longer. And as soon as there's an arbitrage opportunity, ships will go there I and uh, bring the oil there. That's less easy in gas markets. Uh, you have, still have regional isolated markets. You cannot mm-hmm. fully exchange. LNG is making only 10 to 15, uh, roughly 15% of global gas demand. Mm-hmm. So the exchange potential between regions is a bit more limited in gas. Right. And sometimes I read articles about LNG ships. They were like staying outside of the zone, waiting for the higher prices. Then they basically come to the market and they sold LNG. Why this practice? I mean, isn't it like so expensive in, in terms of cost to basically for the ship to be waiting? Like I, I read some articles and the ships were waiting like 20 days, you know, yeah. without, without movement. For the, for the better price. How, how does this work? It makes absolutely sense from an economic point of view. If prices are rising, you wait another month and mm-hmm. then you get the the higher price uh, a few days later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you weigh your charter daily costs mm-hmm. versus the price increase for waiting. And then mm-hmm. it can make sense from an economic standpoint, especially if your ship is already chartered and the cost is sunk already. So if you don't charter, but you own a ship or so, then waiting costs you not a lot. Just the boil off rate, which is 0.1% or so per day. Right. And, and when we, when, do we have any comparison of the companies producing LNG and companies owning LNG ships? Like what sort of percentage of the correlation is there so they can basically speculate on the market? Ooh, this is a tricky question. I don't know by heart because okay. I, but I could look into data because we have mm-hmm. data on the ship fleet, roughly 700 vessels per uh-huh. on, on a worldwide basis. Right. And the ownership is a bit, it's quite diverse. So I would right. not say it's it's very concentrated or so. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, gas producers, the LNG producers are often different players. Right. Uh, a lot of the ships are owned by portfolio players, by big utilities mm-hmm. uh, and off-takers as well, consumers. So it's quite a diverse landscape. Whilst the LNG exporters are... A bit more, there's a bit more concentration on the exporting side. Yeah. Right. And, and what can we say about LNG market in Europe? I mean, the regulations, the principle of liberalizations, price, uh, you know, policies and all those policies together. Can we say that the European market is mature, liberal market for LNG? Or can we say that the European market is quite regulated market for LNG? How, how would you describe that? So the LNG markets in Europe are quite mature, especially in Western Europe. Spain um, and formerly United Kingdom have a lot of experience, France as well, and mm. Italy with LNG. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other countries who are now joining, Baltic mm-hmm. countries, Poland, they have recently joined in past years, and Germany is now yeah, and almost a development country in, in LNG terms, mm-hmm. but quickly learning. Um, uh, it so so it's not mature everywhere. It's a nascent market in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, um, but still, I would say it's a relatively uh, mature legislation, so regulation and so on. 
um, in, in Europe. So we could talk of a liberalized market. It's, it's mm-hmm. not a heavy market concentration, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not lie in the hands of few. But um, an interesting thing is like who has access to these terminals and there's third party access regulation in Europe, but often LNG terminals are exempted from that if they, if they are newly built. Mm-hmm. But by now I would say terminals like Rotterdam, for example, they have good access and diverse access. So there's multiple players who can book capacity on LNG import mm-hmm. terminals and uh, it, it is a liberalized market with third-party access there. Right. You know, when, when you have a gas pipeline in, in the past, you were able to do the spot tradings. Uh, you know, for instance, I need 6 million units of, of gas. Let's buy tomorrow. Can we do this with LNG as well? Do we have anything like that? Or not really. Yeah, it's a bit it's a bit less mature on that. So the gas pipeline booking business is a bit more advanced. Mm-hmm. So something similar has to be established on LNG terms. At the moment, the LNG terms are not so many, mm-hmm. and the capacities are still yeah booked by companies. So mm-hmm. it's it's a bit reserved still. It's not as liberalized as this pipeline business. Right, and also the the other thing is the European Union has started to talk about buying things together. Maybe you noticed that. In practical life, is it possible that the European Union buys LNG together and then in some sort of way it will divide LNG shares for particular members' countries or not? Yeah, it's hard to imagine at the moment because uh, traditionally this market has been driven by companies. Mm -hmm. Companies with a lot of years of experience. Uh, and they have done a okay business, so they will not want to sacrifice these business opportunities and give it to a state mm-hmm. entity or so. Uh, and uh, some level of coordination makes sense, though. Yeah? So um, at the moment, Germany is uh, buying a lot of LNG, and by doing so, it's entering into competition with other buyers from Europe. So coordination would make sense, mm-hmm. especially in these times. Uh, but maybe it's enough to have a coordination mechanism between companies or so and uh, them mm-hmm. putting a stake or so together, right. pulling joint forces. Right. And and in the past, you know, when we were speaking about gas or trading of gas, we were always speaking about like seven, maybe 10 big players in Europe, you know, like huge corporations. So the market was fragmented, but not that much, you know, and at least we could also estimate how the market will go. In LNG, how fragmented is the market in terms of the big players, like players who really influence everything? Uh, I would say it is a diverse market, um, mm-hmm. a bit less than gas pipeline business. So uh, mm-hmm. it, no, it's it's tricky to say. I, I would say mm-hmm. it's uh, we don't have issues of huge market concentration really in, in mm-hmm. LNG markets. Um, especially on the buyer side, you have diverse buyers. Uh, the, I'm a bit more concerned with the upstream business. So we are having issues with one country, Qatar, being very, very important in LNG markets. And so they have concentrated all market power to one company, Qatar Energies. Mm-hmm. And uh, they can exert some market power. Yeah, they right. have 
strategic potential and they are using this increasingly. And this is something where the EU is really uh, has to be watchful. What is Qatar Energies doing? Because Qatar Energies is buying into booking capacities in European terminals. So they're integrating along the value chain. They are booking capacities in Europe. They have also stakes in US terminals and they have upstream uh, capacities in Qatar. Mm -hmm. So they're increasing their market footprint and this can be uh, of strategic relevance for Europe uh, in mm -hmm. a negative sense. Right, that, that's that's very interesting point you mentioned. So so let's let's say, what sort of reforms do do we need in European Union, if any, and what do we need to watch? As you said, this is the thing that we should watch, you know, in the future, so it doesn't over, you know, go over everything, you know, would be what would it have? So so basically, let's let's have a little recap, you know. We have a European market for LNG. You mentioned all the technicalities of financial you know, regulations, policies. And let's say tomorrow is a day that the European Union must decide about the reforms or what to watch. And you as a company leader in analytics, what would you recommend? Yeah, I would recommend EU policymakers to treat LNG infrastructure as critical infrastructure, as strategic infrastructure. Mm -hmm where it should get preferential access to these terminals, to European importing companies, in a transparent way. So people can book capacities on, on, a, on a free basis and also exchange these capacities. By any means, we should avoid these capacities, the scarce capacities, to be monopolized or so mm -hmm. by a few companies who then seek to increase their rents, their scarcity rents. This should be avoided as well as the influence of upstream producers on capacity bookings. This is something EU has to be very watchful on and reforms are needed to avoid capacity bookings by upstream Qatar and other players into European import capacities. Right. And the last question about LNG. Let's assume something happens and Russian LNG will not come to European Union. And we said it's around 14%. Is it possible to replace it with different importers? Or the, ne the next question would be, what sort of new countries do we have in LNG business? Given that this share is not super big, it is possible to... Uh, replace these roughly 15, 14 million tons of LNG with other countries. Um, it would come at an additional cost because you would have um, yeah, more scarcity in the market, in an already short market. But there is a few countries who are now striving to become LNG exporters, especially in Africa, Mozambique, Senegal, those are the two projects coming now. Mozambique just exported their first LNG into Europe in December. And, and there's other small producers, like in the Caribbean countries or so, where Europe could partner with them. Mm -hmm. um, but, but overall, I would say the export potential and the potential for new exporters is relatively limited for the coming one to two years or so. Mm -hmm. It's a bit more open when you look into three years, so then you can invest in 
build new terminals midterm. Right. So so that that's very interesting to 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 hear. You know that we have some alternatives because I think that when it comes to pipeline gas, in some way we were you know sleeping and not really exploring the alternatives for the pipeline gas. Then something happened and we didn't know what to do. You know. So basically, if if there was no the U.S. gas import, I think mm -hmm. that would be quite critical for the European Union to replace the energy resources for the industry and people. So, yep. so that that's quite nice to, to to know that this is what the European Union should do. Andreas, thank you very much. It was it was absolutely fantastic to speak with you. I think we answer many answered questions, you know, because sometimes people think, oh, we know about that. But then when you have a discussion, you are realizing that even simple questions need to be clarified for the for the future. So we have knowledge and we have the perspective how to better analyze gas market and also how to prepare for future challenges which might come because the situation in the world is very, you know, so it's not stable. This is what we can say because of the war, because of the conflicts, because of the climate change, you know, so I'm, I'm very happy that I had the opportunity. Thank you very much again for your time and for your absolutely insightful knowledge and remarks. So what would be your wish for the energy relations for 2023? I hope that we can um, uh, get some calm markets in 2023 uh, with prices uh, yeah, relaxing a bit from the high levels that we've seen in the past year. Less fluctuation, less volatility, and I hope that Europe is uh, quickly building their floating LNG terminals, but not overbuilding into this, not uh, exaggerating this, uh, so as to not build stranded assets uh, would then cause problems later. Mm -hmm. So I, I I wish that markets calm down quickly and that we yeah face less challenges. Right. Thank you very much, Andreas. I want to thank our viewers for watching us, and see you next time. Thanks for the invitation. Bye.